Hey, it's John from CityCast. If you're in the mood to pamper yourself a little bit this week while supporting cruelty-free products, you should check out Bone Cur Home and Wellness. It's the best place in Portland to find everything from chic home decor to cannabis accessories. They've got a curated collection of vegan and cruelty-free home goods and wellness products because their name is French for kind heart, after all. You'll get a 20% discount on your first order when you sign up for emails this week at boncoeur.net. That's B-O-N-C-O-E-U-R.net. And use the code BONECURCITYCAST20. Did you know that the Pacific Northwest has a long and complicated history with nuclear power? We have two decommissioned power plants, not to mention all the radioactive waste they left behind. The Hanford Nuclear Reservation in Washington was part of the Manhattan Project. That's the same think tank that created the bombs for Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And right here in Oregon sits the remains of the Trojan Nuclear Power Plant. I feel like worrying about melting nuclear reactors or contaminated groundwater feels so 1950s. But here we are in 2023 with New Scale Power, a Portland area company promising a brighter future and cleaner source of energy in the form of small modular reactors or SMRs. So today on CityCast Portland, we're talking with Jan Hawken, a clinical psychologist and professor emeritus at Portland State University. She's made a documentary called Atomic Bamboozle that draws from lessons of the past to address this new production of SMRs in the Pacific Northwest. It's Thursday, May 18th. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. Jan, most of your life was spent focusing on uh, psychology. What got you interested in this topic enough to make a documentary about it? I was interested in the history of nuclear power in the Northwest, including the, the most important examples being the rise and fall of Trojan, which was closed in 1992 and decommissioned in uh, 2006. Um, there's a long process of taking down these plants. It's a very dauntingly expensive and long process. But what was important about Oregon was a ballot measure was passed that requires any new nuclear facility to only be built if there's a permanent uh, waste disposal site and with the consent of voters. And the prospect of a permanent geological repository is not on anyone's horizon this, these days. So, But the most people don't know is that the radioactive waste from the Trojan nuclear power plant is still on the site. Yes. And if you visit that lovely park, it's now the, the Trojan Park on the site of the former reactor. You don't see that tower. You can have a nice picnic there. And But what is also out of view are the 32 casts of radioactive waste that will be there in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. So the way radioactive waste that need to be protected from any life forms for up to 200,000 years are uh, resting casts and are protected 24 hours, 24-7, and will is a, a legacy that I think is invisible to many people. And parts of reactor parts were also taken, shipped up the Columbia to the Hanford Nuclear Reservation and, and buried there. 
and the Hanford site was up in Washington. A lot of people don't know how close this is to Portland. Like this is a one hour drive to Portland, this Trojan Park. <laughs> I think the the concern, we, you know, we live in a, a very dynamic volcanic region here mm-hmm. in the Pacific Northwest, including uh, here along the Columbia. And if there was a major quake, it would be an unthinkable disaster. <laughs> yeah, we're very we're due for a very large earthquake. Um, but a lot of these power plants, like the Trojan Nuclear Power Plant and the Hanford Site, which is in Washington, they were built along the Columbia River. Uh, the Hanford Site, in particular, was built uh, specifically so the Columbia River could cool some of uh, of, it, of its infrastructure. Well, reactors depend on uh, access to a lot of cold water, a problem that France is facing with uh, shutting down about half of their reactors because of drought and other problems with uh, access to water. Right. And with like uh, the world basically yet to have a long-term solution for this radioactive waste, the radioactive waste that exists now is just being packaged up in as much cement or whatever as they can. And they're just hoping for the best. I mean, 200,000 years from now, like that's, it's a big fingers crossed, nothing happens. It's a number so big and so hard to conceptualize that it it's hard for it's hard to register that amount of time, far, far longer than human evolution. And how to secure materials that would be dangerous to all living things for that period of time is unthinkable. And it's so unthinkable that I think people don't think about it. But now there's these small modular reactors, SMRs, and, and Portland has a company right here uh, trying to make these smaller versions of these larger uh, plants that didn't quite work and they still haven't fixed the problem. There's still going to be the waste for, you know, generations, generations and generations. Um, you know, you do have a background in psychology. Um, it's not that I'm like, can you explain how minds work? But like, what is it that like, <laughs> like we're basically making the same mistake over and over again? That is what, kind of where I entered this picture and how, <laughs> how, how I came to create a documentary, which is as much as anything about the history of uh, nuclear power messaging and how the industry over time has managed public anxiety about radioactive waste and other safety issues um, that we learn about episodically as there's a crisis. We all know about Three Mile Island, Fukushima, Chernobyl. And then as those dramatic, highly visible crises fade, um, the industry steps in to put them very far in the past, to frame them as highly infrequent, which is true, they are infrequent, although nuclear low-level accidents and problems in reactors are far more common than the industry would admit. Very few people in this country are arguing for building more large reactors or the light water big reactors that we associate with nuclear power. They're promoting these small reactors of various sizes that produce under 300 megawatts of power versus the one to 2,000 megawatts of the big towers. But they have distanced themselves in their own campaign messaging 
from the nuclear industry. They, they build on um, what they see as its strength, saying it's clean power, though there depends on what you mean by clean. <laughs> now if it has dirt. waste, it's not clean. I like, know. No, I mean, what's the... That's an <laughs> yeah. old divide that has become popular now with dirty coal, dirty fossil fuel. We all know dirty is bad, so clean is good, even yeah, so it's just the radioactive branding. waste. Yeah, they rebranded yeah. it and set against the reactors of yesteryear, uh, the reactors your grandparents protested is what young people are told. We have these new modern, slick, svelte, almost feminine forms that represent the promise of modernity itself. So there's been um, a rebranding of nuclear power that I think at a minimum, the public has a right to look behind the curtain of this, you know, and, and to overcome what I see as a kind of generational amnesia around nuclear power, particularly as these major accidents fade from collective memory and the climate, the urgency of the climate crisis is, is on us at a quickening pace. And that makes us vulnerable mm. to futuristic fantasies that offer, a, offer redemption from the difficult situations we face. And so you often get this false choice. Do you want dirty fossil fuels or do you want nuclear power? And of course, nuclear by some metrics, is better. But that's that's not the correct comparison, I think many scientists would argue, including the Union of Concerned Scientists. Okay, let's take a quick break here. Uh, when we come back, the argument that is being made about needing nuclear power to combat our climate crisis. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Your documentary, I remember there being some climate activists basically saying, this isn't going to make much of a difference. You know, these the, this nuclear power, like, we're at a point where we're, like, so screwed <laughs> that if we all, for some reason, started to create, you know, these small modular reactors and they were all, you know, we each had one, it still wasn't going to get us where we needed to go. Um, could, you, could you extrapolate that? Because, like, I was like, you know, if it's not going to make much of a difference in the climate crisis, then like, why are we gambling? Why are we potentially starting this really old, you know, cycle of like, uh, quote unquote, clean energy that is just creating a ton of waste? Yeah, and that that is part of that history of nuclear power of overpromising, building confidence, overpromising around safety, around time, around costs. It's a heavily, heavily subsidized industry. Mm -hmm. We as taxpayers have a right to what's delivered on, on addressing the climate crisis. And some of this is because it takes so long to go through a regulatory process. You know, on their ads, you see factories and control and, yeah, yeah. and the reactors themselves. These are uh, designs 
They're projections, um, essentially. They're projections. Yeah. And to get a, all of the supply chain, a whole system in place, the regulatory apparatus, you have to have a very good system for monitoring nuclear power. But even, even with all of those risks and their most optimistic projections, these reactors could not come on board on a scale that would affect or impact the climate crisis for quite some time. You know, there are dozens of models competing and it's a kind of entrepreneurial um, wild west right now. Yeah, we're like 30 or 40 years, you know, uh, out. But isn't isn't Portland's new scale power, they, they have something already in the works with, was it, uh, is it Idaho? They hope to, to build the first design or implement the first design. I mean, New Scale is head of the pack here in Oregon. So that also alerted me to a responsibility we have as citizens here to address the concerns that the company itself has been very reluctant to address in any political or public forum. Their design is very similar to the uh, light water reactor is a kind of miniature version. They've been able to move ahead faster with the um, design process, but there's still a long, there's a long road that they're trying to streamline as many of the other designers are to, to try to reduce the regulatory requirements and barriers, which is itself pretty frightening for many people who, who are concerned with the risks of nuclear power. Right. And uh, I find it kind of odd that Portland, Oregon is one of the sites for one of these, uh, you know, small modular reactor companies because um, Oregon did pass that law. You can't build new power, like new nuclear power uh, stations of any sort until you figure out what to do the, with the radioactive waste is my understanding of that law. Yeah. And so And with voter approval. So it's interesting that that is the company that's working here because I don't think with with all that in play, who knows if they'll ever have anything, you know, situated here in their in the home state of their business, because it doesn't seem like Oregon's ever going to um, allow that, being that they're never going to figure out what to do with this radioactive waste, aside from like shoot it into space or, you know, bury it in, in the core of the earth or, you know, whatever. Yeah, we have, but we have, I think, an opportunity and a responsibility as citizens here to voice our concerns that come out of our history and not only be concerned with what happens in the borders of our state. You know, um, I think that's that issue of the arbitrariness of borders is something I've become more sensitized to working with tribal communities, indigenous people who know that a lot of what happens in one part of the world affects tribal communities where indigenous people are in the areas that are most affected by these extractive industries, whether it's fossil fuel, uranium mining, right. or the this, radioactive yeah. waste associated with nuclear, including in Hanford. The history of Hanford is, has been a traumatic one. Yeah, I heard that when the Hanford site was created, it was created in a space where a lot of uh, the Yakima people would come during the winter because it was specifically mild there. And then, of course, they would hunt for fish or what have you. And they found that the levels of radioactive just in their body and they had ridiculously high levels compared 
to people who just weren't in that area. So showing that anyone who hangs out in that area eats from that area. Um, it's just, it's not, it's not clean. It's not, it's not ready uh, to coexist with humanity. And I, I think what you're saying, Jan, I, is that it's not just indigenous people. I mean, if it happens in Idaho and something weird happens there, it's going to affect Oregon. We're really close. I mean, we're, we're sharing the same ecosystem um, in a sense. Um, is that what you mean? Yeah, I think we have a lot to learn from and a lot of responsibility to the impact of our industries, destructive industries on indigenous people. Um, and of course, that one principle, I think we're all aware of, of seven generations, thinking ahead, of what are your moral responsibilities to not just your own children, but to future generations. And we have many more than seven generations <laughs> that we have to tally. I don't think we can turn to entrepreneurs to assess the products they are aggressively promoting, even if they strongly believe in them, as I think many do. But we also know as psychologists and everyday people that belief in something does not mean it's true. And in fact, People who are highly invested in these industries are um, are not in the position, I think, to evaluate whether they're in the public interest. Because the industry itself tends to portray the anti-nuclear movement as kind of, well, these are old, wacky people, old hippies. These are your grandparents who are kind of still hungover in yesteryear's problems and young people aren't aren't scaredy cats of this, of this industry. But when you look at the actual risks and costs of these industries, I think it's a terrible maligning of critics of the industry to cast them as, you know, old-fashioned worry warts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, I mean, they're basically uh, protesting pretty much the same thing so it's not it's not like it's it's not a new solution um well jan thank you so much for taking the time and uh for making that documentary i thought i knew something about what was happening you know in our area concerning that but i was like oh i had no idea i had no idea it went this deep <laughs> so thank you so much that's for making good that I'm, gl I'm glad you uh, i guess in enjoyed it most of my life has been as an academic professor, and so I'm a teacher at heart and wanted to draw out a, a fuller, bigger picture on this industry that perpetually buries its history and its problems. Ooh, that's good. Yes, it does bury its history and its problems. Quite literally. <laughs> Quite literally. As well as <laughs> metaphorically. And <laughs> yes. Okay, well, thank you, Jan. Thanks for having me today, Claudia. And now for your microdose of news. Mayor Ted Wheeler is planning to ban daytime camping on city property, including sidewalks and parks. Anyone sleeping in a tent will be required to pack it up during the day. It's not that different from past city policy, but it's unclear if the consequences will be different for violating this new law when it's approved by city council. And after a Rolling Stone article on his alleged links to Christian nationalists, former Deputy Sheriff Derek Peterson withdrew from the Portland Public School Board race, re-entered, 
and withdrew again before losing on Election Day. Retired teacher Patty Sullivan won despite raising no money and earning very few endorsements. And following that trend, all suburban school board candidates who were backed by conservative groups that pushed book banning or were against sex education also lost their elections. This includes in Hillsboro, North Clackamas, as well as Canby. For even more local news and events, sign up for our daily newsletter, Hey Portland. We'll throw a link in the show notes. That's all for today here on CityCast Portland. If you enjoyed the show, you know, why not share it with a friend or leave us an amazing review? We'll be back tomorrow morning with more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's. <laughs>